I have, for the better part of my life, spent at least a portion of my day standing in front of a bathroom mirror. And I'd wager the same is true for most, if not all of you. The obvious trait that a mirror possesses, the trait that makes a mirror a mirror, is its reflective nature. It, it reflects an image, an exact image, of whatever stands in front of it. And this is a useful property because we do not possess the ability to see ourselves, or at least not all of ourselves. I spend a portion of my day looking into a mirror so that I can shave my rugged, <laughs> extremely masculine, <laughs> Cary Grant-like chin without hacking two-thirds of it off. And when I had a mohawk, I needed the services of a mirror to achieve maximum spikiness with minimum fluffiness. One of the benefits of having a mirror is by looking into it, we see areas where adjustments need to be made. Uh, maybe you have something stuck between your teeth that renders your usually charming smile rather grotesque. Or perhaps your eyebrows have thrown caution to the wind and they're making their way towards one solid line of hair from ear to ear. Hair needs to be combed or shaved or trimmed or gelled. Maybe, maybe some acne needs to be treated. Maybe you need to remove some stray food particles from your face. People who use mirrors generally use them for this purpose. To make necessary alterations. And it's this principle that actually makes a mirror an apt metaphor for Scripture. Scripture often implicitly or explicitly presents to us an image of what we are like or what we are called to be like. And I wonder if you felt that a little bit last week as, as Pastor Scott was preaching to us. Did you see your reflection in any of the men in Luke chapter 9? How does your reflection compare with the image that Scott put forward of what an obedient disciple looks like? Do adjustments need to be made? James actually makes this connection between Scripture and a mirror in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24 of his epistle, where he says, Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. In other words, it's a mark of foolishness to look in a mirror and take note of the broccoli that's dangling from your teeth and then walk away smiling without ever having touched a toothbrush. The same is true of individuals who perceive from Scripture that something about their life needs to be altered, some, some change needs to be made, but then they go on with life without making any kind of correction. One of the ways that Scripture uh, presents to us an image is by giving us examples of men and women who have honored God with their lives. Now, I want to direct your attention to one such passage this morning. We're going to look at the book of Philippians, specifically chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Philippians chapter 1. The book of Philippians, and the first chapter in particular, gives us an, an image of what mature faith and submission to Christ look like. Now, in this passage, we get a candid look at the Apostle Paul, and I want to give you some background to this passage to sort of uh, establish the context of what Paul is going to say. See, when Paul writes Philippians, he's in the middle of a prison term. 
traditionally it's believed that Paul is serving this, this uh, imprisonment in Rome. Uh, th- there have been some alternatives to that raised in the last hundred years or so, but I, I, I believe that the traditional view of Rome still seems the best. Regardless of where Paul is, there are a couple of things that are clear from the book of Philippians. For one thing, Paul's trial is approaching. And he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know how that's going to turn out. And the other thing is, if he's, if he's in Rome and he's under house arrest, he's chained to a soldier 24-7 to prevent his escape. And I imagine that that would be somewhat disconcerting for somebody that's awaiting a trial where their life is going to be uh, decided. Meanwhile, while Paul's going through this, one of, the, one of the churches that he planted in Asia Minor, the church at Philippi, heard about what Paul was going through and, and they were deeply concerned for him. So they sent a man named Epaphroditus, who, who may have been one of their deacons, to go stay with Paul for a while and meet some of his physical needs and then bring back news to them about how Paul was doing. And Paul was deeply touched by the love that the Philippians showed him during this period of his life. And so he wrote this letter and he sent it back to Philippi with Epaphroditus. We're going to read verses 12 to 26 of this letter in chapter 1. And you can probably imagine what the Philippian church is expecting to hear. This is a letter from somebody who spent at least a year in prison at this point and now he faces literally the possibility of his execution. It's, It's quite possible to the Philippians that this may be the last that they ever hear from Paul. Let's listen to what he says. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. After after, uh, greeting the Philippians and praying for them, this is what he says. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains... Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ, in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. 
Did you catch some of that? Let me just highlight a few of the things that really stick out to me. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Or how about, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is in prison. His, his life is literally in another man's hands. He's, he's chained day in and day out to a highly trained military professional and he says the important thing is that in every way Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I see the need for an adjustment when I read this. Because my letter, if I were writing in this situation, would sound something like, the important thing is that right now I'm okay. The food's not terrible. And because of this, I rejoice. Or, I eagerly expect and hope to get out of here soon. If I don't, here's a list of the, all the guard shifts. Please break me out of here at your earliest convenience. I sincerely doubt that I would have the spiritual maturity or the, the fortitude to write this letter under those circumstances. Now, this passage is often turned to by Christians who are in the midst of suffering. And, and you can see why. The, the context of the whole letter is suffering. But here's what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning. While Paul writes in the midst of suffering, while his circumstances are suffering, he's not nece- what he says is not necessarily limited to circumstances of suffering. What we have in these verses is a candid look at how Paul is thinking about and assessing his circumstances. It's how, how, what he's thinking about how he's going through, or what he's going through. I want to spend some time drawing out Paul's filter this morning. The things that he believes that he uses to orient himself to what he's going through. Uh, What he's speaking of is the core desire at the center of his being that transcends any and all circumstances. The desire to submit to Christ in everything. This passage right here is the heart of mature Christianity. And it looks the same in seasons of prosperity as it does in seasons of suffering. And this is the image that Scripture holds out for us this morning. So for the rest of our time, there are three characteristics of a life that is submitted to Christ in this passage. And that's the the broad heading that I put these under. Uh, Here are some statements for you uh, that, that characterize mature Christianity. First of all, a life that is submitted to Christ is a life that prioritizes the message of the gospel. Okay, a life that prioritizes the message of the gospel. We see that in verses 12 to 18. Look at how Paul opens this section in verse 12 and then how he closes it in verse 18. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then in verse 18 he says, The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice. Paul is committed to preaching the gospel. 
And the obvious question that this begs is, uh, if, if God is committed to the spread of the gospel, which we believe that he is, and Paul is committed to preaching the gospel, it would seem like uh, it is more advantageous for God's purposes if Paul stays out of prison, right? Why does God let Paul go to prison? It doesn't seem to make sense. And that's probably one of the issues that the Philippians are concerned about. Now, if you're, if you're a Phillies fan at the moment, you know all too well what happens when your star players are out. Right? You, you don't win many ball games. Doesn't it seem like the same would be true in evangelism, in the spread of the gospel? How are you going to successfully spread the gospel when your best evangelist is out of the equation? Paul, I think, has the answer to this. We're going to look at what he believes. But first of all, God is committed to spreading the gospel. It's the work he's been about since he created the world and it fell into sin. When humanity rejected God and chose instead to go their own way and embraced sin and folly, God went to work redeeming us. He promised to send a Savior, someone who would deliver us from the curse of sin. He chose the nation of Israel as the people through whom he would reintroduce himself to the world and through whom he would eventually send the Savior. And then 2,000 years ago, he sent his only son into the world, the man Jesus, as that Savior. And Jesus lived with the poor. He healed the broken and the sick and the hurting. He challenged the proud and He was perfectly sinless. And then God let humanity crucify Him. And in the moment of His death, God took all of the sins of humanity and He put them on the back of His perfect Son. And He poured out all of His anger and His hatred for that sin on His Son instead of on you and me. Three days later, he raised his son from the dead. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples one final command. Make disciples of all nations. In other words, take the gospel to all nations. That is the news that he has taken our sin upon himself and his righteousness is ours as a gift of his grace if we turn to him in repentance and faith. God is committed to spreading that message. We believe that. Paul has the maturity to recognize that the command to him is to preach the gospel, regardless of his circumstances. God will take care of the where and the who. He just needs to know what he's doing. See, Paul Paul recognizes that God hasn't put him on the bench. He put him at the plate. If you're committed to preaching the gospel, no matter what, God can use you anywhere. Paul points out two ways that his imprisonment has actually advanced the gospel. First, he's preaching to soldiers. This is what I think is amazing about this. If you look at the broad spectrum of humanity, God is not interested in just kind of taking a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here. He wants his gospel to go to all of it. And so what happens is, He knows, uh, to to borrow a a phrase from a former employee of mine, that John Doe Soldier is a communist heathen who is destined for hell. He also knows that John Doe Soldier has no avenue to hear the gospel. He's a member of the Praetorian Guard. 
He does not go to house church services. He doesn't go to the synagogue. He doesn't just chit-chat with Christians at the marketplace. His, his avenues for hearing the gospel are non-existent. So what's he going to do? Well, he takes his best evangelist, has him arrested, and eventually shipped off to Rome, and then chains him to this soldier for four, eight, maybe ten, twelve hours a day. And you know what he heard? The gospel. Secondly, with Paul in prison, rather than sitting on the sidelines and lamenting his situation and the impact that this would have on the spread of the gospel, other believers have taken it upon themselves to preach the gospel. Some of these are also people for whom the message of the gospel is a priority. They see what Paul sees. Right? They know that Paul is where he is by the will of God for the sake of the gospel. And they figure if, if Paul can preach in those circumstances, if he's preaching the gospel to soldiers while he's in prison, then I can preach the gospel in my circumstances. And so they preach with boldness. Some of these preachers are preaching out of some rivalry that they have with Paul. Maybe, maybe just, uh, just a personal thing where they want to be recognized as a superior evangelist. Uh, something like that, maybe. But Paul points out that the end result is the same. The gospel is preached. He, he subjects not only his personal comfort and his freedom to the spread of the gospel by enduring and even using his imprisonment for to, to preach the gospel, he subjects even his dignity to the priority of the gospel. These people are trying to humiliate Paul. They're trying to rub salt in his wounds by preaching the gospel. And he says, what does it matter? What does it matter what they're trying to do to me? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Subjects his dignity. Now, when we look at this, here's the hard part. If God uprooted you, if he took you away from your friends and your family, everything that you know and love, and he chained you to a soldier, a soldier who maybe just sits there, stone-faced, maybe one who mocks you or spits on you or beats you or restricts how much food and water you can have or maybe how often you can relieve yourself. Would preaching the Gospel be a priority? Would the fact that Christ is preached cause you to rejoice? What about here? What about now? What about in your current circumstances? Do you preach Christ? Is it a priority? Do you recognize that God has put you where you are for the defense and spread of the Gospel? Does your life prioritize the message of the Gospel or does it prioritize your own personal happiness? This is something that we should all take a good, long, hard look at because I know that it's an area where we collectively fail. We don't evangelize. And it's not just us, it's the church in America in general. 
A second characteristic of a life that is submitted to Christ is that it is a life that anchors its purpose in Christ's exaltation. A life that anchors its purpose in Christ's exaltation. We see this from the end of verse 18 through verse 20. As Paul sits here writing this letter, he very openly and honestly says that he hopes he will not be ashamed when the time comes for his trial and the threat of execution. For Paul, his concern is not to exalt himself, but to exalt Christ. Paul is face to face face with the possibility of death. He's looking his mortality in the eye. And he knows that the temptation for him is going to be at this trial to do everything that he can to extend his life. That's going to be his temptation. If that's what he does, he'll be ashamed. Instead, he seeks courage to exalt Christ, whether that means he lives or he dies. And we can learn a few things from what Paul says here. First of all, it's striking to note that Paul's concern is not the outcome of his trial, but rather the way in which he conducts himself during his trial. I think Paul's motivation for this is what he believes his purpose in life is. And it's not to glorify himself. Twice in this passage, we've seen instances where Paul could glorify himself. First, in the face of of other believers who were trying to humiliate him. And now, in the face of uh, where he could primarily be concerned about extending his life. Paul's purpose is, rather, to exalt Christ in everything, whether that means he lives or he dies. His trial to him is not merely a hearing in which his fate will be decided, humanly speaking. It's an opportunity for him to exalt Christ before the emperor and whoever else is present. It's an evangelistic opportunity. At the end of the day, the mark of a good trial for Paul will not be that his neck is still in one piece, but the fact that he presented Christ as someone who is good and great and someone for whom he would gladly and willingly die. We can also learn from where Paul places his confidence to be able to perform this task. Look at verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul does not place his confidence in his flesh. He doesn't trust in his own ability or you know, the sheer force of willpower and his own personal fortitude to be able to do this. His hope is in the prayers of other Christians and the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain him and enable him to present Christ this way. This is what Christ has called him to do. But the question is, why is Paul so concerned about exalting Christ in this situation? Why does that exceed his concern for life or death? To us, that probably seems a little bit out of sync, given his circumstances. But Paul is thinking in much broader terms than these particular circumstances. Paul is aware that his entire purpose is wrapped up in this calling. His entire purpose is to exalt Christ. In Acts 9, we're given a brief summary statement about uh, Paul's calling. Jesus says of him, This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he will have to suffer for my name. Paul's circumstances are not his main concern. He doesn't really care where he's at or what he's going through. 
He, he might, but they're not his priority. They are the work of a sovereign God who is working to redeem his creation and bring it back to himself. His purpose in all of his circumstances, no matter what, is to make the name of God known. To exalt Christ. And for us, the calling is the same. It may not be on as grand a scale as Paul, who was called to be an apostle, but we are still to be engaged primarily in exalting Christ. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, that book holds this out to us. Every other pursuit in life that we may engage in is ultimately meaningless, except for this one. And the book of Ecclesiastes phrases it this way, to fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. To, to make God known. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's the only thing in which there is any ultimate meaning. The question before us as we look at these verses is this. Where do you anchor your purpose? Are you primarily concerned with exalting Christ or exalting yourself? Does your life reflect a devotion to meaningless pursuits Or does it reflect reverence and devotion to the God who made you and redeemed you? Finally, a third characteristic of a life that is in submission to Christ is a life that sees living as opportunity and death as gain. A life that sees living as opportunity and death as gain. Verses 21 to 26 are a continuation and explanation of what Paul says in verse 20. Again, he he very openly and honestly writes about what he's thinking, about what he, what's going through his mind. And the belief that informs how he thinks about living and dying, I think, is expressed in verse 21. For Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's out of this belief that Paul realizes that Christ can be exalted whether he lives or whether he dies. And when Paul says, for to me, at the beginning of verse 21... That's not to imply that for you and I something else might be true. This is a transition statement. Paul's shifting his perspective a little bit where, where before he was thinking about his circumstances and how they related to Christ and how Christ can be exalted. Now he's, he's thinking of it on a more personal level. What does it mean for him if he lives or if he dies? And this poses a legitimate dilemma for Paul. He, he sees advantages to both. Paul is not so invested and consumed with the business of living that he views death as a bitter end or or really in any way a less satisfying uh, state of existence or a less fulfilling experience than living. And contrarily, he sees death as gain. It should also be pointed out that he's not so consumed with the thought of death that he sees it as a means of escape. Right? Paul's going through some hard things here. Very difficult things. But for him, death is not just a way out. It's not, it's not freedom. It's not ultimately the, the, the end of his pain. It's important to note that the value in one does not negate the value of the other. And that's where Paul has his dilemma. Uh, this Wednesday evening, I'm, I'm going to leave for a camping trip with some very good friends of mine from college. Now, this, this trip poses for me a dilemma that may help to illustrate maybe a little bit of what Paul is going through here as he thinks about living and dying. I, I love the guys that I'm going to be spending time with. 
These, these are some of my closest friends from, from college, and uh, we do this trip on a yearly basis. I, I look forward to this trip every year. I, I come home from this trip with sides that are literally sore from laughing. This, I, I really enjoy this trip. But on the other hand, I leave my wife and my daughters behind for five days, and I will miss them terribly. In some sense, there's not a moment of that camping trip where I would not rather be with my wife and my daughters. There's nothing on this earth that I love more than the three of them. So for me, to return from my camping trip will be gain. I see value in both. And the value intrinsic in one does not necessarily negate or cancel out the value of the other. So Paul speaks of death on the one hand first, and he explains what he means by the idea that death is gain. And it's it's pretty simple. It's a basic reason. To die is to depart and be present with Christ. And that's all he says. And the fact that that he limits his reason to that assessment is significant for us. For one, we see the love that Paul has for Christ. You can see how much that Christ means to Paul in that statement. When I'm driving home from my camping trip, I'm thinking about one thing. I'm going to be with my family. I'm going to be be with the people that I love. My wife is a good cook, but I'm not thinking about food. When I go on this camping trip, I'm, I'm going to sleep on some very uncomfortable things. And my bed is very, very comfortable at home. But I'm not thinking about sleep. I'm thinking about my wife and my daughters and being with them. And that's it. That's enough. That's all I need. And this is how Paul feels about Jesus. Death is gained because he will be with him. And it's also significant because of what Paul does not say. Paul makes no mention of death as release or relief from his suffering. It's not an escape. It's not the ultimate remedy for his pain. It's not ultimately freedom. See, that approach to death was as common in his day as it is in ours. And that's not his concern at all. Death is gain because of Jesus. Its value lies in Him, not in whatever our earthly circumstances were at the time of our death. So then Paul moves on to living. To go on living in the body will mean fruitful labor for Him. He says that initially, and then later in verse 24, he expands on that thought by saying that it is more necessary for the Philippians that he go on living. And he's so convinced of that necessity and and so aware of his purpose in living, that he believes God will ensure that he will survive his upcoming trial. That that God will make it so that he survives. And he will continue to serve the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith. He will continue to spread the gospel. Continue to live out his purpose. Life for Paul is an opportunity to exalt Christ. Now, can you imagine what that must have looked like to a guard that's chained to Paul? Who knows that he's in change because of his preaching, and yet he continues to preach Christ. He's he's facing death 
for preaching Christ. And yet, he continues to preach Christ. And not only that, he's rejoicing. Now, no doubt, some of these soldiers mocked Paul. And, and maybe, maybe did worse than that. Wrote him off as, as crazy. Or just uneducated. A fool. But some of them, I'll bet, started to wonder, who is this Jesus that such a man would live like this? What must his God be like if he's willing to do this? And Paul would joyfully explain that this was the kind of God who is not only willing to die for him, but also to orchestrate circumstances so that Paul would be able to tell him about it. And can you imagine what that would do to the Philippians? To hear an appeal from a man who is suffering for the sake of the Gospel to continue to preach the Gospel. Imagine how much weight Paul's words now carry as he moves into verse 27 and he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Whether I live or I die, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is our charge. That is our calling. And I'll close with this. I was listening to a sermon by John Piper this week, and he had this quote. Listen to this. Christ exalting courage, boldness, fearlessness, risk-taking is not something on the edges and the periphery of Christian life. It's at the center. It's not icing on the cake for the super saints that you read about in biographies. It's the meat and potatoes of normal Christianity. With that in mind, the image that Scripture holds out to us this morning is that of the Apostle Paul, a normal Christian. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to You for Your Word. In it, You reveal to us who You are, what You are like, what You have done for us. Father, we're so thankful for the Gospel. We're thankful for Christ and His his willingness to endure suffering to exalt You, to carry out the work that You had given Him. Father, it is because of that that we will one day stand in Your presence, that we will be together with You. And that will be enough. Father, we thank You for the example of Paul. And we ask now that You would take this Word and apply it to our hearts by the power of Your Holy Spirit. The temptation for us will be to to look after our own dignity, to seek our own comfort, to exalt ourselves. And Father, we lack the fortitude, we lack the the willpower to uh, carry out the calling that You have given us on our own. So Father, would You be present with us with Your Holy Spirit? Would You encourage us to pray for one another to live out this command? Father, we pray that through us, the Gospel would continue to advance, that people would continually be coming to know You and to love You. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.